I invite you to turn with me in the Bible to Mark chapter 14. We're going to continue studying this wonderful gospel of Mark. And we're coming to a section where uh, we see a theme running through, and we'll see it for the next couple of weeks. I was trying to make three sermons into one, but that just wasn't working out, and I thought we'd never, we'd never be able to leave on Sunday if, if I preached three sermons in one, so we're going to be hearing about this theme over the next couple of weeks. We're looking at verses 53 to 65 this morning. This is the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. May God bless the, hearing of, the, the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. When I was in school, the word substitute was music to my ears. If we had a substitute teacher for the day, it usually meant that we would not be doing much classwork and the students were probably going to get, with a lot, get away with a lot more bad behavior than usual. The substitute was often less a teacher than the real teacher. Now I'll say this with apologies to uh, our several substitute teachers in our congregation this morning, including my wife. I'm just saying this was my perception, not necessarily the reality. Sometimes subs are much better than the other teachers. Well, the word substitute also had a more personal meaning to me. In my high school sports career, I played all the sports, football, basketball, baseball, and others. And sadly, I was usually a substitute, uh, which again meant that I was less a player than the starting players. I was not first string. When I came into the game, there was usually a drop-off in the quality of play. Well, maybe like me, you think of substitutes as being less than the real thing. I want us to not think that way this morning and for the next couple of weeks because, as I said before, the theme of the next three sections of Mark all the way through 1515 is this. Jesus is our substitute. 
And he's not less than the real thing. He is the real thing. Jesus, an innocent man, we see here, is receiving the justice due a guilty man. Jesus, though innocent, is counted, as it says in verse 64 there, worthy of death, so that we, though guilty, can be acquitted and go free. The blameless is blamed, so the blameworthy can go free. So in this case, something better is being substituted for something worse, not the other way around, like we usually see it. Now this idea of substitution is spelled out, especially in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, uh, and especially in the books of Romans and Galatians. He explains it in full there. But here in the Gospel of Mark, it is laid out for us in narrative form as we see uh, the uh, trial of Jesus, the trials of Jesus in these next three sections. God, through Mark, is telling us something about the nature of Jesus' death in these next few sections. And what he is telling us is of the utmost importance. Jesus is bound so we can be released. We get what he deserved, and he gets what we deserve. So let's turn our attention to the text this morning. I have only two points this morning. Uh, the first one is this. The Sanhedrin demonstrates the human problem. The Sanhedrin demonstrates the human problem. Now, verse 53 tells us that they led Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and scribes came together. Verse 55 tells us, that in, in our translation, that this was a meeting of the whole council. And in the Greek, the word for council is the Greek word Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish ruling council. Uh, they executed jurisdiction uh, in religious matters, but also in civil matters. They could order arrests and conduct trials, but they did not have the power to execute anyone. They, they did not have the power of the death penalty. If there were capital cases, they would need confirmation by the Roman procurator. In this case, that Roman procurator is Pontius Pilate. So in chapter 15, 1 through 15, we'll see that these uh, men of the Sanhedrin taking Jesus to appear before the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, because... They want Jesus put to death. So, how is the Sanhedrin demonstrating the human problem? Well, first, we need to understand what the human problem is. Now, look at the quote on the front of your bulletin, a quote from John Stott. It's from his book, The Cross of Christ. He says this, for the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. So our fundamental problem as human beings 
is just as he said it. We substitute ourselves for God. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. We, we claim prerogatives which belong to God alone. We look at this Sanhedrin, that's exactly what they're doing here. They have set themselves in opposition to Jesus. We've already seen uh, that they have decided in an earlier chapter, in chapter 14, that Jesus needs to die. They want to, to kill him. They have put themselves, in this case, the text before us, in judgment over him. But in this trial, in this so-called trial, we see that they are incompetent judges. This is no court of justice. It's a travesty of justice that we see going on here. If you look at what they, they do in verse 55, it, it tells us that they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now, this is the first injustice. A court is not supposed to decide on a verdict before the evidence. They knew in their hearts that they wanted Jesus to die, and this is just a vehicle for them to do so. So what kind of court is that? They're just looking for legal pretexts for committing murder. And in verse 56, it says that many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. So they had all of this spurious testimony, testimony that would be inadmissible in a court, and the case should be dismissed at this point. But instead, they keep Jesus and keep looking for a new way to convict him. Could you imagine yourself being at court and uh, being accused of something falsely, and then when they find that that's not true, they start looking for something completely different to charge you with, I think you would get the feeling that somebody's out to get you. And that's exactly what's going on here. Verses 61 and 62, Jesus is asked to confirm the charges against him. And therefore, they're actually asking him to testify against himself. They go against their own laws. They were supposed to, just as we do today, provide him with defense counsel which they do not do. Add to that several other factors, like they're having this trial in the middle of the night, which was illegal. They pronounce a verdict on the same day, which was illegal. And then, after the trial is, the so-called trial is over, we are told in verse 65 that some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him. Well, you can see the tremendous malice that they had against Jesus. It's not at all appropriate behavior for a judge and a jury to just beat someone on the spot. Could you imagine that happening today? Uh, a judgment is passed down and then uh, the jurors and the, the, ju the judge come down and start beating up uh, the accused. It's terrible. They were incompetent judges condemning Jesus who actually is the ultimate judge. And he points this fact out in his words to the high priest. Look at verse 62. He's asked, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, he says three things there. First, he says, I am. Uh, he's claiming, yes, I am the Messiah. And then he says that he was the Son of Man. You will see the Son of Man. That's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And then thirdly, he says that he will sit at the right hand of God in heaven. And that's probably a reference to Psalm 110, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Well, in both of those allusions, the Daniel 7 and the Psalm 110, 
the Messiah is coming as a judge. So here they are accusing him, putting themselves in judgment over him when actually he is the ultimate judge and they accuse him ultimately of blasphemy. But who is really blaspheming here? They should be the ones condemned, not Jesus. They asserted themselves against God and put themselves where only God deserved to be, sitting in judgment over him. They claimed prerogatives which belonged to God alone. They substituted themselves for God. They played God in this jury with Jesus' life. Therefore, they demonstrated the fundamental human problem. Now, when I say a fundamental human problem, I mean fundamental because it takes us back to the Garden of Eden, to the very first sin. Genesis chapter 3. We see there Adam and Eve in the garden. And it tells us there that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Well, so far... We're in good shape. Eve said the truth. And Adam's right there with her. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Notice the lie that Satan tells Adam and Eve. First of all, you won't die. Second of all, you will be like God. In other words, God is withholding something from you, something really desirable, and that something is to be like God yourself. He's trying to keep you down. He doesn't want your best. Uh, he, he wants to, to, to uh, limit you in ways. And if you look at Eve's response... First, she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, the first two things are not the issue at all. Yes, the tree was good for food, just like all the other trees in the garden. And yes, the tree was a delight to the eyes, just like all the other trees in the garden, in this perfect garden of Eden. I'm sure it looked absolutely Wonderful, beautiful, beyond our imagination. But this particular tree, out of all the other trees in the garden, was forbidden by God. None, none of the other trees were off limits except this one. The real temptation was in the third thing that was listed there by Eve. She saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise like God. See, they stopped listening to God... They stopped listening to his command and they said, you know, we know better than God. They decided to, to make the judgment that yes, we should be able to eat of that tree. They substituted themselves for God and it did not work out for them or for us that matter because Adam's sin is imputed to us. We're talking about the imputation of, of Christ's righteousness, but first we have the imputation of Adam's sin. All mankind fell with him and sinned with him in the Garden 
of Eden. So it's our fundamental human problem. Satan lied to them because once they ate that forbidden fruit, death did enter the world. He said, oh, you're not going to die? Well, yeah, you are. And, and they did not become like God at all. Rather, quite the opposite. Very much unlike God. This scenario, this Garden of Eden scenario, is played out innumerable times every day in each of our lives. Most of us don't even realize it when it's happening. But God has revealed His will to us. We know right and wrong. But we assert ourselves against God, put ourselves where only God deserves to be, we claim prerogatives that belong to God alone. We substitute ourselves for God. Every temptation to which we succumb is a Garden of Eden scenario. We think we know better than God. We want to be God of our life. We want to call the shots. And we disobey God because fundamentally we do not trust God. We think he's holding something back. We think that, hey, we need this thing. We need to do this or we need to have that or we don't want to do what he tells us to do because we know better than he does because we think he's just trying to hold us back. We trust our own judgment above his. But just like the Sanhedrin, we are incompetent judges. Proverbs 14:12 tells us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a way that seemed right to Adam and Eve, but its end was the way to death. There's a way that seems right to Tim, but its end is the way to death. And there's a way that seems right to you, but its end is the way to death. Every sin that we commit is deadly. It takes us down the wrong path. And what we see here is that we are fundamentally faithless people. Faith, we have faith in ourselves, but not faith in God. And when that's a problem, because Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith in God, without faith in Him, it is impossible to please Him. It is impossible to please Him without trusting Him. So we have this problem. The Sanhedrin demonstrates it for us, this human problem. But thankfully, I do have a second point, and it's good news. Because whereas the Sanhedrin demonstrates, demonstrated us, to us the human problem, Jesus here demonstrates the divine solution. There is a divine solution to our terrible human problem. The Sanhedrin assumes a place only Jesus deserves to have. We assume a place only Jesus deserves to have. But the flip side is a glorious truth. Jesus assumes the place we deserve. Jesus gets the punishment we deserve, so we go free when we turn to him, even though we deserve to be punished. Isaiah 53 prophesied about this happening, prophesied about Jesus, tells us about what, ha what, was, what is happening here in our text and what we're about to be studying over the next few weeks. It tells us that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Hence the hymn we just sang. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
not for any transgressions of his own. He had no transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have a fundamental human problem. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He willingly laid down his life for us. Why did he do this? Verse 10 tells us, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's plan of salvation. The Father sent the Son to come. God took on human flesh to be here and to provide a way of salvation for us. Tells us, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And that's it right there. We are accounted righteous. He bears our iniquities. This divine solution is called imputation. The innocent is punished, the guilty goes free, and that imputation has two sides. And it's very important that we grasp both sides of imputation. Jesus, as our substitute, has has imputed to us his righteousness. and, and, And for that to happen, he took our sin upon us and dealt with it on the cross. But he also declares us righteous, righteous based on his righteousness alone. If we only think of half of that, if we think of the cross as only pardon for our sins and not also the reception of Christ's righteous record, then we won't grasp the thoroughness thoroughness of our salvation. I didn't grasp this a long time when I became a Christian. I knew that Jesus had washed away my sin by his death, but I did not know that I also got credited with his righteousness. I thought of my life as a whiteboard. You know, we don't have really blackboards anymore. Uh, a whiteboard, you know, these where the teacher teaches and you can use markers. And The whiteboard I thought of as a place where all my sins were written. Every one of them written down. And what Jesus did was come and through his death, through paying the penalty for my sins, he, he wiped my sins clean. The whiteboard was cleaned. But it was just a blank slate at that point. How was I going to get righteousness? Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord, the Bible tells us. So I, I still wasn't holy. I mean, I wasn't guilty of any sin, but I had no righteousness. So I thought, well, I need to start doing some good things and start writing some good deeds up there so the Lord will like me and continue to like me. Well, the problem was that I wrote more sins than good things up there. And and even my good things were tainted with sin. And so I never knew if God really cared for me because I never lived up to the standard. I was living as if I was saved by my works. 
But actually, what happens, what Jesus has done for us, is not only has he erased our sins from the whiteboard, but he has filled up the whiteboard with all of his righteousness. We are credited with his righteousness when we repent of our sins and put our trust in him. That's the great transaction that happens. He takes our sin, pays for it, and we are declared righteous in his sight because his righteousness is credited to, him, credited to us. Now think of that. Think of Christ's righteousness. He was perfect in every way. He always loved his neighbor as himself. You, know, you think of his life. Every moment of every day that he ever lived, he always loved everybody. You know, we don't think about that maybe often. We see it, yes, when he healed people, healed the blind, healed the lame, healed the sick, raised people from the dead. Uh, you know, we see it in the good deeds that he did. But he always loved everybody. He, you know, he went out and he spread the good news. He made disciples. He did all of these good things in his life. And, and so much, John tells us, that all the books in the world couldn't contain all that God has done, all that Christ has done. All that he did in his life is credited to us. He always loved everybody as himself, and he always loved his heavenly Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved him so much, and he loved us so much, that he went to the cross because going to the cross was being obedient to the plan of the Father. He did this, and we get the credit for it. You get credited with everything that Jesus did when you put your trust in him. See, if we try to live by our own good deeds, well, Isaiah 64 tells us all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. If you have an older translation, filthy rags. If you look at the Hebrew, I'm not even going to tell you what that means it's gross. It's disgusting. So the best that you can do is gross. That's the highest standard that you can meet with your good deeds. You've got to have something else. And Isaiah tells us, and the whole Bible tells us what that is. Isaiah 61 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So Jesus takes our filthy, gross rags and gives us his perfect robe of righteousness. And we are clothed in that. And the Holy Father sees that and accepts us based on what Christ has done, not, on what, not what we have done. So here we see in our text uh, Jesus substituting himself, laying down his life, suffering because of us so that we might go free, so that we might be able to be declared righteous in his sight. So if today you're struggling, I, you know, I can't forgive myself, or you struggle in various ways to prove yourself to God, you're going around about it the wrong way. You don't realize that in Christ, you're holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. When God sees us, he sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness. When you get a hold of that truth, it really makes a difference in why you do good things. You know, why, why should you be good? If, if it's all freely given to you, well, yes. I want to serve this Lord. Look at how much he's given you. 
Look at how gracious he's been. Look at how he has pulled you up without any uh, effort on your part, pulled you up and given you salvation, saved you from eternal punishment. He has done that and so much more by showering every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places upon you. Would you not want to love him back and show it by being obedient to him and to say, look, this God has given me every tree in the garden. I can eat of all these spiritual blessings. Why would I go for this one that's forbidden? Why would I disobey my Lord in this way? You see, it gives you rest for your soul and gives you a purpose for doing good deeds. And until you get that, you're just going to be spinning your wheels and you'll be frustrated and you'll end up with an ulcer because you'll never know when you've done enough to please God. But it's already been done. So when you get Jesus, you don't get a less than substitute. Actually, you get a more than substitute. And better than that, you can get a more than you ever imagined or dreamed substitute. And is there for us. He freely offers this to anyone who will come to him, turning from their sin and putting their trust in him. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me. If anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. There are wonderful promises that Christ has given us, and it's our own fault if we refuse to come to him. Come and buy without money, Isaiah tells us. It's all available to us. So I pray that you would embrace Christ today. Let's pray together.